Welcome to River of Life's Wednesday Night Podcast with Derek Gray. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to visit River of Life Church this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Visit rolcrawfordville.com for service times and directions. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Now, let's join Derek as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to find your places, we will go ahead and hope we don't get struck by lightning and we can finish this thing up. If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, which I would always suggest that you do, make sure I don't slip anything in there on you that ain't in the Bible. Uh, Romans 8, 33 to 39. Tonight we come to the end of uh, what I think is the greatest chapter uh, in the Bible, and that is Romans chapter 8. And uh, what, a, what, a, what a topic we have for tonight, which is the sovereign love of God. Now, we will get to our verses in a little bit, but let me just say up front that there is no doubt. In fact, it is patently obvious what the purpose of tonight's verses are. And that is to create in us an immovable, unshakable security and assurance in the sovereign love of God. And why would Paul want to do that? Well, the answer is pretty clear, so that we can suffer well. And when I say suffer well, what I mean by that is that when we go through things, painful things, tragic things, hard things, but Paul wants to build in us this security so that we don't turn our back and walk away from God. You see, hard times are going to do two things. It'll turn you to God or it'll turn you away from Him. And Paul is trying to build in us this unshakable security so that we won't turn away from God when times get hard. Now, you may say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at verses 35 and 36. Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? He says, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Even when we're dead, even when we're dying, even when we're being killed and persecuted, he says, even that will not separate us. So we know what these verses are about. They are about creating that unshakable security in the love of God. Now, I got to admit, whenever I read this passage, the first thing that always jumps out at me is how different Paul's response to suffering is from most modern Christians. See, the fact is, we all go through things, and when we go through things, we may not say it with our mouth, but a lot of times the first thing we think in our, in our head is something like this. Well, if God loves me, how did he let this happen to me? And we begin to doubt him, begin to doubt his, his love. But you see, Paul, you ever talk about a man that was intimately familiar with suffering? It was the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 11, he said this, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 39 lashes. If you do the math, that's 195 stripes that he took. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I've been shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. Frequently on journeys in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from the Gentiles. Danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship. Many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure. And apart from that, there is a daily pressure on me 
of my anxiety for other churches. Listen, you want to talk about a life full of suffering, it was the Apostle Paul. Yet, here in Romans, he's talking about the love of God, and he is confident. He is persuaded. He is assured. He's not questioning God's love. So I have to ask the question, what does he know about God's love that we don't seem to know? Or, or what does he know about God's love that, that we seem to, um, to struggle with? So tonight, we're going to talk about the sovereign love of God. And we are going to start at the very basic, because I think a lot of us struggle not so much with the concept of God's love. We actually struggle with the actual concept of love. So we're going to start at the very basic, and we're going to ask this question, what is love? I... Um, I served as a, a youth pastor, a volunteer youth pastor here for five years, from 2009 to 2014. And uh, every year, I would do a teaching on love, explaining to the kids, this is what love is. And the reason I did that is because I understood that their view, their, their definition of love doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from culture. In fact, it's not just teenagers, it's, it's many of us, as we'll see. So every year I would do a teaching on love. Now, a lot of times I'd have fun with it, right? I'd, I'd, I'd say, well, if we want to know what love is, let's turn to music, right? Because 99% of the songs are all about, all about love. But obviously, you, you know, one, one song loves a many splendored thing. The next one, Jay Giles' band says love stinks, right? So you get, it's confusing if you turn to, to, to songs. So... Obviously, if we wanted to go to culture and find out what love is, what we would do is we'd go to academia. We'd go to maybe somebody like Dr. Deborah Annapol, who is a Ph.D. in psychology. And this is what she wrote in Psychology Today. She said this, love is a force of nature. However much we want to, we cannot make it happen. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Read that again. We cannot make it happen. Any more than we can command the moon and the stars and the wind and the rain, you can choose to surrender to love or not. But in the end, it strikes like lightning, unpredictable and irrefutable. See, that's culture's view of love. It just, you can't control it, man. It's either, it's either it, you fall into it and you fall out of it. You've you got no control over it all. Now, now, here's the problem. If that's true, then as Christians, we got a big, big problem. Because when I come to the Bible and I open my Bible, I see God commanding me to love Him, love one another, love others, love my neighbor, and even to love my enemies. And He commands me to do it. Like, like somehow I've got a choice in the matter. So, so which is it? Is, is love some kind of feeling or emotion that you can't control? And if that's true, by the way, then how could I ever love my enemies? How, how could I ever love God if that's true? So what we find when we come to the Bible is we got, there's some good news in this, that the Bible's definition of love and culture's definition of love are two completely different things. Culture's definition, again, is this feeling, it's an emotion, it's something that you can't control, you fall in of it, into it, you fall out of it. The Bible's definition is completely different. In fact, one of the places we find this, if you go to the love chapter, which is 1 Corinthians 13, and you go to these verses, let's, let's read them. And this is the Bible's description of love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. 
It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable uh, or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but did you notice all the verbs? You don't see anything in there about feelings or emotions. It's all about actions. Believes, hopes, endures, rejoices. Even in the negative, it says it doesn't insist. It doesn't boast. It doesn't envy. You see, when you go to the Bible and you look at the definition of love, it's never described as a feeling or emotion. It's always an act of your will. It's something that you choose to do or not to do. Now, let me say this, just so you're clear. I'm not saying that love is devoid of emotion or devoid of feeling or devoid of affection. What I'm saying is it doesn't require it. That's a big difference. It doesn't require feelings and emotions. Now, I remember as a teenager, I can vividly remember reading the Bible and telling me to love my enemies. And I can remember thinking, how is that even possible? How am I ever going to conjure up feelings inside of me for somebody that I don't even like? How could you command me to do something, God? There's no way I could ever pull that off. And then one day I got exposed to this teaching, showing me in the Bible that no, love's not about feelings and emotions. Love in the Bible is a choice. It's about actions. It's something that you do. And I thought, well, if that's true, then that makes sense, right? Then if it, if it is a choice of my free will, I can choose to love God. I can choose to love others. I can even choose to love my enemies. So I went on a search. I went through the scriptures and I began to look at scriptures about love and I began to search the scriptures to see what it taught. And lo and behold, I discovered something. Anytime the Bible speaks of love, it almost always, and I'm not saying this is a hard and fast rule, but it almost always immediately follows with an action. Let me give you some examples. Luke chapter 6, 27 to 28. Jesus said, to this, said, said this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Now, he could have stopped right there. Could have put a period there and said, love your enemies, and he could have left us hanging. I'd have been like, hey, I don't, how am I supposed to do that? But he didn't. Watch what he does. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. You see, I can love my enemies by doing things that benefit them, even if I don't like them. In fact, did you notice the Bible never says you have to like them? The Bible never even says you have to get along with them or have any kind of feeling of affection. It just says, do good, bless them, pray for them has nothing to do with feelings or emotions in that sense. It's a choice of your will. It's a free act that you choose to do. How about loving God? Listen to John 14, 15. Jesus said this, If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. Let me tell you, sometimes it's easy to love God. When I'm in church and, and everybody's singing and worshiping and the Spirit's here and and man, it just, you feel all these feelings, right? These emotions. But let me tell you, there are times God seems a million miles away. But even during those times, I can still love Him by keeping His commandments. Even when I don't feel that, even when I don't feel all that emotions, I still love Him by doing what He asked me to do. How about our marriage? 
Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives. Again, he could have put a period right there. He could have stopped. And we'd have been like, oh, well, how am I supposed to do this, right? But he did. He said this, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me tell you, it's easy to give myself up for my wife when I'm feeling all mushy-gushy, right? When everything's going good. But there's times I don't even like her, right? And there's times that she certainly... There's certain, and don't, don't laugh, you know in your marriage, come on. There are times you don't want to be in the same room with one another. You need to get away. But listen, even in those times, I still serve. I still give myself up. That's a choice of my free will. I choose to do that, even when the emotion isn't there. Do you see those words? They're verbs. Do good, bless, pray, obey, give, keep. They're all acts of our will. They're all choices that we make. 1984, Foreigner wrote a song, I Want to Know What Love Is. Well, this is what love is according to the Bible. Love is a decision of our free will to act for the good of another. That's what love is in the Bible. Love is a decision of your free will to act for the good of another. You can love God. You can love your neighbor. You can love one another. And you can certainly even love your enemies. Now, let's expand this out from our love for one another to God's love for us. Does the same definition apply to God? Does God love us in that same way? Well, let me answer that for you. Absolutely, He does. Absolutely. God's love in the Bible, it, this will astonish you if you just go start looking it up. God's love in the Bible is almost always followed immediately by an action. Let me give you some scriptures. Romans 1.7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Deuteronomy 7.7. 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10, this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. You see those words? Called, chose, gave, sent, died, made alive, all verbs, all Acts of His will. All things that He chose to do for our benefit. Absolutely. God, that definition applies to God. God's love is a choice. A decision of His free will to act on someone's benefit. By the way, and this will be on the test in a few weeks. God's hate is not an emotion either. God's hate is a choice not to act on someone's benefit. That's all it is. God's love is a choice to act for your benefit. God's hate is a choice not to act. That's all it is. And we'll see that in a few weeks. Now let me tell you guys this. If I could somehow... Sometimes I struggle up here because I, I want something to be so clear to you. And I'm just not sure that... Am I, do, am I getting it across? But I cannot tell you how important it is... For you and I to understand that God's love for you is a choice, not a feeling. See, the fact is, 
we grow up in a world and we all think love is about a feeling and it's about an emotion. And you know that those emotions come and go. E even the person we think we love the most in the world, people will stand at an altar and swear allegiance to one another. In a few years, it's gone. They fell in love and they fell out of love. And too many people apply that to God and they think, well, if that happened to me, how do I know God won't stop loving me? How do I know he won't fall out of love with me? It's not about that. It's not about some feeling of affection and all of that. It's about a choice that he makes. And we need to understand that. When my boys were uh, little, I don't see them here tonight, but my boys were little, I started saying something to them. And I, at the time, I didn't even know why I did it. I just started doing this thing to them. I would tell them, I started with Josh, and I, I did it with Micah as well. I would tell them until they eventually got embarrassed of me saying it. But this is what I'd say to them. I'd say, if God lined up all the boys in the world and told me that I could pick any one of those to be my son, I'd choose you. I told them that for years. I'd choose you. And at the time, I don't even know why I was saying it. It's kind of like, you ever had a, a kid come home and, and maybe they didn't make the baseball team or, or, or somebody told them they were ugly or made fun of their hair or something like that. And they come home and they tell you about it. And as parents, what do we say? Man, I think you're beautiful. I think you're awesome. I think you're the best baseball player there is. And your kids always say the same thing. Oh, you got to say that. You're my dad. You have to say that. See, I wanted my boys to know that Somehow there was just something in me that wanted them to know that you're not my child just by happenstance. You're not my child just by luck of the draw, that some kind of potluck of genetics and DNA. No, if I could choose, I would choose you. See, there's something about being chosen that's different. And see, I couldn't choose, but God did. God can and God did. God chose you to be his child and adopted you into his family. And you need to understand that. You need to grasp that because there is a depth in that that cannot be moved inside of you. Now, that's awesome. That's wonderful. The love of God is this beautiful thing. It's a choice that he makes to put his love on you. But this next word makes all the difference in the world. We don't just talk about the love of God. We talk about the sovereign love of God. You see, I don't know if you know it or not, but this is what Paul has been talking about for weeks. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Do you understand? God doesn't just love you and just hope for you and think good thoughts for you. No, God is sovereign. He makes it happen. You see the difference? God makes a choice not only for your benefit, the sovereignty of His love makes sure that those things come to pass in your life. That's why no matter what comes in your life, He can work it out for good. That's why Romans 8.30 says, your final glorification and inheritance in heaven is a done deal. Romans 8.31 says, nobody can be successfully against you because God is for you. In Romans 8.32, we saw that God's already done the hardest thing by giving His Son. How, how, how 
else would he not... I mean, wouldn't he just go ahead and give you all the good things you need in your life? He's already done the hard thing. See, this is all sovereign love. It isn't just a love that sits back and, and, and hopes things work out. No, it's a God who is actively at work in your life making sure that these things happen. Now, Paul is continuing, and we're going to step into our verses here very quickly. Paul is continuing this theme tonight. And the first thing he says in verse 33 is this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Somebody tell me what elect means. Chosen. Chosen. His chosen. Who can bring a charge against the ones that God has chosen? By the way, Paul is not saying that no one will ever accuse you. That's not what he's saying. We know that Satan is known as the accuser of the brethren. Jesus said that people will bring accusations against you falsely. That's not what Paul means. What, mean, what Paul means is that in the courtroom of heaven, you don't ever have to worry about anyone bringing a, a charge against you there and making it stick. You don't ever have to worry about that. Now, I want you to notice his reason. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And notice what he says. It's God who justifies. The thing that jumps out at me there is he doesn't say anything about you. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. You're a good person. Don't worry about it. You've been living a good life. Don't worry about it. You're, he doesn't even say you're made right with God. It all goes back to him. Why? Because he's sovereign. God is the one that justifies and if God is the one that justifies, he has the final say. Listen, do you understand that we live in a world of courts and laws where there is nothing ever final? You ever thought about that? I've seen people acquitted in a state court, and they'll just turn right around and bring federal charges against them. I, I've seen Supreme Courts, which is supposed to be the highest court in the land, they'll make a decision... And then 20 years later, another Supreme Court will overturn the decision. There's nothing ever final on this earth. But let me tell you, with God, He's the judge of judges. There is no one above Him. There is no one else to, to bring a charge against you. If He says that you are right with Him, it's over. It's a done deal. Nobody can ever change that decision. Paul goes to verse 34. He says this, Who can condemn us? Watch again what he says. It says nothing about us. He immediately points to Christ. Christ is the one who died. More than that, Christ was the one who was raised. More than that, Christ is the one who is at the right hand of God. Now watch this. This is fixing to get really good. When Paul says Christ is at the right hand of God, that has very special meaning. In Ephesians 1, 20-21, Paul explains it like this. God raised him from the dead seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named both in this age and the age to come. That's sovereignty. That's power. That's dominion. That's control. Jesus has all of that. Now, can you imagine? Here is the sovereign God of the universe, the one who has all rule and all authority and all power, and that God has loved you. That God died for you. That God chose you. But it gets even better than that. Paul says, he's even now praying for you. 
Can you imagine? The one with all rule and power and authority, the judge of judges, the sovereign king of the universe, is praying for me. He's praying for me. Listen, he's praying for you, and please understand this, he is not praying for everybody. He's not praying for everybody. We've used this scripture several times over the past few weeks, Luke 22. The Lord says to Peter, he said, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, that he may, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. Peter, in a sense, is going to be turned over to Satan for a time. And Satan's going to have his way with him. But Jesus, watch what he said. I've prayed for you, Peter. And, and notice what he prayed for. Not that he wouldn't suffer. Not that he wouldn't experience guilt or anxiety or any of these other things. He said, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Let me tell you, folks, when Jesus prays, there's no sin to hinder his prayer. He's praying in the perfect will of God. And he's praying with perfect faith. When Jesus asks for something, he gets it. When he asks for it, it's a done deal. In fact, notice what he said. He didn't say, if you come back. He said, what? When? It's already decided. Why? Because the sovereign God is loving him sovereignly by praying for him to make sure that he will turn around and come back. But listen to me. On that same night, that was the last, that was the last supper right there when that happened, by the way. On the same night, in the same room, Satan entered into another man by the name of Judas. And Jesus looked at that man and said, what you do, do quickly. And he never prayed for him. Never. See, he's not praying for everyone. He's praying for the ones that he loves. He's praying for the ones that belong to him. He's praying for me. And he's praying for you. Listen, I don't know of anything else that can assure the Christian of God's commitment on our behalf, God's commitment to our eternal security other than that statement, He is praying for you. He's praying for you. That is just, it, it's unbelievable. But again, it's God loving us, right? It's not just a feeling, it's an action, a sovereign action which is praying for us, making sure that we are brought home. You see, a wife may lose a husband. And she may say of that husband, nothing will ever separate me from his love. And what she means is his memory will always be with me, or I'll always think about him. Or Listen, Paul's not talking about anything like that. Jesus isn't dead. Jesus is alive. And he is sovereignly loving me right now, by praying for me, interceding for me with the Father. Which means, by the way, He is making sure that we are safely brought home to Him. Is it any wonder when you get to verse 35, Paul says this, Who can separate us from a love like that? Who can separate us from a love like that? Now, by the way, we read these verses earlier, verses 35 and 36. Paul listened terrible things. Terrible things. I mean, when you start using words like killed and slaughtered, he's listing terrible things. Why would he do that? Because he wants you to know that even terrible things don't separate you from his love. 
Even the terrible things that come into your life aren't a sign of his wrath or his displeasure or his hatred or anything like that. He's working those things out for your good, good, purposing that you'll be conformed to the image of Christ, as we learned last week. But it also tells us, by the way, Christian, that his love never spares us from calamity. We are never promised that in the Word of God. Never. In this life, you will have tribulation. It is coming. When we started Romans 8 several weeks ago, I told you that Romans 8 is all about assurance. It's all about building into us who we are in Christ, who God is for us. Building into us this security in His love. Why? So then in our suffering, we won't walk away. That in our suffering, we will not turn our backs on Him. But we will stay with Him. We won't do, what did Lot's wife, I mean, uh, uh, Job's wife say? Just curse God and die. And Job said, are you crazy? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the kind of people that we need to be. Even if everything else goes, we still are standing there trusting Him. The, the point of these verses is that not that God's love promises escape from calamity. God's love promises that you'll be more than a conqueror in calamity. Verse 37, Paul says, no. In all these things, we're not just overcomers. We're more than overcomers in Christ Jesus who loved us. I'll close with this. On September the 16th of 2001, that was five, I think uh, September 11th was a Tuesday. September 16th was five days after 9-11. How many of y'all remember that week? It was chaos, wasn't it? The market shut down, the airlines shut down, no, there was nobody doing any work. Everybody was, was looking around, wondering what's coming next. It was just a, it, it was an absolute chaos. And on Sunday morning, that Sunday morning, John Piper who had a church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, stood up and he preached a message to his church. And I want to read you what he said. And I'll just read it verbatim from him. He said this, How shall I strengthen your hope this morning? Shall I try to strengthen your hope politically and comfort you that America is durable and will come together in bipartisan unity and prove that the democratic system is strong and unshakable? Shall I try to strengthen your hope militarily and comfort you that the American military might is unsurpassed and can turn back any destructive force against our nation? Shall I try to strengthen your hope financially and comfort you that when the markets open again on Monday morning, there will be stability and long-term growth to preserve the value of your investment? Shall I try to strengthen your hope geographically should I tell you that because you're in the upper Midwest or because you're in a little town in a little county in Florida and you don't live anywhere near those major military or political or financial centers that you're going to be okay? That the enemies will never find their way here? Is, is that how I strengthen your hope? Or shall I strengthen your hope psychologically? Send you to a web page that says self-care and self-help following disasters and, and, and strengthen you that way. And this is what he said. The answer to those questions is very easy for me. No. I will not try to strengthen your hope in those ways. And the reason I won't is very simple because none of them is true. 
You tell me, does anybody think we are stronger politically today than we were 20 years ago? Does anybody think we're stronger militarily today than we were 20 years ago? Does anybody think we're stronger financially? Listen, you may think, and I can guarantee you people in here have thought that. Well, it'll never happen here. Let me tell you, I open my news every day, and there's something crazy going on in little towns all across America. Shoot, you, listen, living in Walcola County does not protect you. It can happen here. Do you think psychologically our country is better off? No, people are going stone crazy. See, none of those things are true. None of those things are comforting. What is the basis of our hope? Our hope is that nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. Not even terrible, tragic events that happen in our lives. He goes on to say, and I love this, Our Savior and King, Jesus Christ, died and rose again to bear our sins, become our curse, endure our condemnation, remove our guilt, and secure our everlasting joy in the presence of an all-satisfying God. And the sovereignty of God over all persons and events guarantees that what Jesus Christ bought for us by His own blood will infallibly become our inheritance. And I don't know about you, but all I can do say to that is, Amen. Amen. Listen, is it any wonder, that's how John Piper said it. This is how the Apostle Paul pretty much says the same thing. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you understand that He loves you? Do you understand that His love isn't a feeling that He falls into and falls out of like a human being does? His love is a choice. It's a choice, by the way, that He made before time began. To set his love on you and choose you. And he's going to do everything in his power. And he has all power to make sure that you make it home to him. On that journey, there will be highs and there will be lows. There will be dangers and there will be toils. There will be tragedy and there will be pain and there will be loss. But he is praying for you. <laughs> that your faith should not fail. Let's pray. Father... What an incredible, incredible chapter we've just finished up. And what a way to finish it, Lord, talking about your sovereign love. I thank you, God, tonight that you love me. I thank you that you love so many others here at River of Life. And I thank you through the years I can look back and I know that you've been praying for us. There's been many times where we could have gone off track, not only as, a, as, a, as an individual, but as families and as a church. But God, you've been praying for us, and we've stayed the course. And God, I thank you for that. I give you all glory for that. I honor you for that. We thank you for your love, your sovereign love that doesn't leave us to ourselves, but is making sure that we make it home to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to the River of Life podcast. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with you, please let us know. You can call us at 850-926-1200, 
or send an email at info at riveroflifefl.com. We also encourage you to check out River of Life live this Wednesday at 7 p.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions. Mm-hmm.